0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Hello, Eastern family and friends. Welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, The Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. Stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress, Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, needed to be patched, and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics, under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray, always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the uh, uh, Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. From the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane, These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers. That could even cost them their lives. From just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development that allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat. The airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few Uh, The first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern, the first wide-bodied aircraft, the L-1011, the first air shuttle, the first Boeing 757, and many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show, the Eastern aircraft, from the Pitcairn Mail wing aircraft to the jumbo jets, like the Lockheed L-1011, the Airbus A300, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story So we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. That's Captain Eddie. C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story.
2: This next story comes to us from the files of the REPA magazine. You can check all those stories out at the website repaonline.com if you'd like to read all the stories submitted by Eastern Pilots. Written by Captain Jim Holder, an EAL EAL radio host and storyteller extraordinaire, as Jim says, most of what he tells is true, except maybe the stories from the Eastern Pilots deer camp. But I suspect this story is 100% true. Have you ever feared running out of gas in your automobile? You wanted to get there so you thought, I'll chance it. Or then in a few more miles you think, I should have stopped at that last gas station 25 miles back. Or I sure hope this gas gauge is accurate. In any case, the worst consequence is you may have to call AAA or walk a couple of miles to get some gas. But What about your fuel being low and you've got a plain load of passengers sitting behind you? This tale is titled, A Cold Winter Night a memorable flight by Jim Holder. Yes, it was as we left the hotel at dark for our Eastern Airlines flight from Kennedy to San Antonio. This memorable flight occurred a long time ago, back in the days of seat swapping on the jets, which ended, as I recall, on January 1st, 1969. This one was late in November of 1967. We three pilots had pretty much been flying together all month, this trip and the next one were a two-dayer with a layover in New York City. I shall call the captain, Tom, and the first officer will be Dick, but I won't be Harry, I will remain Jim. Now I was a bit senior to Dick, but as we had flown together most of the month, we just swapped evenly and so it worked out that the second day of this trip I was sitting side saddle flying as a second officer. Matter of fact, Dick and I lived very close to one another, so we had bid this particular line is to ride into work together. As stated above, this was a long time ago, before the days of Bow Wave and other such later revisions to the ALPA contract that allowed a pilot to exceed the monthly hour maximum. Because of that, Tom, our captain, was worried about losing his last trip, our next one, as he only had about 20 minutes or so to play with go over that and he would not be able to fly his last trip, thus losing about 13 hours of pay. Of course, he might be able to pick up a lesser paying trip, however. It probably would be a bad one that he would not like, but he, as he was very senior, he surely could get a trip of some sort. But he was quite fix, fixated on this and had been worrying about it the entire trip. Arriving at a dispatch, we learned that not only we had a 150 mile per hour headwind for most of the flight, But also the main runway, landing east, at San Antonio, was closed and the ILS for the other one, landing to the northeast, had higher minimums, those being 300 feet ceiling and three-quarter mile visibility due to non-standard approach lights. The only good news was that San Antonio was reporting three-hundred and three-quarter and was forecast to have the same weather way past our arrival time. We had a heavy load of passengers, so the dispatcher wanted to set up a refueling stop in Houston, also our alternate airport, which Tom immediately rejected, as this would certainly cause him to lose his last trip of the month. He stated that with some cruise, con- some cruise control, including altitude changes if need be, we could make it okay. The dispatcher did not agree, but he did finally sign off on the nonstop flight. Dick and I were making eyes at each other by now. We were to fly November 8139 November, a B727-100, which, as I recall, had an Eastern required minimum fuel at landing of 5,000 pounds. Might have been a bit higher. I do not recall the exact fuel load, but we took all we could and off we went in the cold winter night, flying into the teeth of a hurricane. The higher we climbed, the stronger the winds were. We finally reached our planned cruising altitude of flight level 350, and there were the winds right on the nose at 150 knots. We had a rudimentary computerized flight plan back then, and at our first checkpoint, it and I, the second officer who, among other duties, kept up with the fuel burn, agreed we would have 3,500 pounds of fuel at San Antonio, way below the absolute minimum. Fuel required by Eastern at landing, not to mention this fuel remaining was not at our alternate, but our destination. Of course, I immediately advised Captain Captain Tom of this, which at least got his attention. As my figures and the flight plan agreed, he decided it must be true. But to my surprise, he just decided to slow down, save fuel, he said, and press on to San Antonio. At the next checkpoint, nothing had changed, still 3,500 pounds. So Tom decided to descend to flight level 310. There we still had 150 knot winds on the nose. He then asked that I update the San Antonio weather, which I did, and found it was still 303 quarter. This cheered him up tremendously as he announced that all was okay. We would enter a straight in downwind, make a 180 degree right turn back into the northeast runway, and be at the gate just a few minutes late. The next leg to Atlanta would be way under schedule due to the strong tailwinds we would have. Thus, he could fly his last trip with us. I looked over at Dick, who had not said a word, expecting him to support me. I could see concern in his eyes, but still he was silent. Now we were coming up on Knoxville, and I was getting very antsy. I recalled being the brand new keep-your-mouth-shut-your-own-probation co-pilot back in June of 1964 when Captain Charlie Mardican and I initiated Eastern DC-7B unscheduled service into Waterloo, Iowa after wandering around the Upper Midwest for hours and hours dodging storms. I clearly recall the final 15 or so miles of that flight being in the clouds with all the tanks showing empty. I swore then that would never happen to me again. That story is also told in the Reaper magazine. It's called Waterloo in the 2001 Spring-Summer edition of Reaper T. Over Knoxville, nothing had changed. Weather the same, fuel still 3,500 pounds, a little over 1,000 pounds per tank, and Tom still determined to press on to San Antonio. I slammed the back of Dick's seat as I was making this report to Tom, but again, his only contribution was to look concerned. Coming up over Memphis, I again checked the weather. Same, projected fuel on arrival, same, and calmly reported it all to Tom. He just stared straight ahead. I then stated, this is exactly what I said to the best of my memory. Captain, it is okay with me, but on to San Antonio if you want to. Tom turned to me and smiled, and I said, but land in Houston and let me off. He asked if I was serious, and looking him straight in the eye, I assured him that I was. He turned to Dick and told him to get Clarence to Houston for a fuel stop. Never said another word to me. We refueled and flew, flew on to San Antonio where the weather was still quarter and arrived at the gate with sufficient fuel to have flown safely back to Houston had we been unable to land in San Antonio, almost dewey some 165 nautical miles. We certainly could not have done it with 3,500 pounds. Captain Tom was not on the next trip, of course, and not only did he not speak again to me that night, but whenever we would pass in the hall or crew schedule of Atlanta, he would ignore me. We never flew together again. Now, like many stories, this one has a sequel. Later, in 1974-75, I was elected Atlanta's Council Number 7 Vice Chairman and First and Second Officer Representative. As such, I got many calls concerning matters that some Eastern pilots would rather discuss with the Alpha fellow than with the company. Late one night, I got such a call from Captain Tom. He had had a problem with a certain first officer, and rather than call the chief pilot, he called me, the first officer rep. I told him that I was aware of this fellow's behavior and would give him some more guidance and counseling. Tom then said, again, this to the best of my recollection, Jim, do you remember that flight into San Antonio? I replied that I certainly did. He then said, you were right. I thanked Tom and told him I had waited a long time to hear him say that to me. I am proud to say that from that night on, every time, and there were many, until his death, Tom would, at Atlanta luncheons, meetings, and parties, go out of his way to shake my hand and talk to me. This is the way such stories should end.
0: After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check-in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns.
2: Eastern's last flight took place over 30 years ago, but the cause of Eastern's demise is still debated to this day. This next story comes to us from the Wings of Man. It's entitled Out of the Ashes into the Fire by B.W. McLaughlin, and it concerns the impact of deregulation. The impact of deregulation has affected every major airline in the United States. Some have had to reorganize and some have been bought out by other companies and some have lost the battle to survive. In 1983, the trauma experienced by Eastern Airlines was nearly disastrous for the airline with a financial loss of $183.7 million. President Frank Borman, in a letter to all company employees, said, Part of the reason for the loss is that we spent most of the year fighting one another rather than the competition. If the year 1983 had any redeeming qualities at all, it was that out of the trauma emerged a clear commitment of all employee groups to do whatever is required to succeed. The phoenix that arises out of the ashes is a promise for the future. Following deregulation in 1978, the US airline industry changed dramatically. New low-cost airlines entered the free market. As a result of this competitive impact, Many companies failed during the transition from a regulated to deregulated industry. Flight attendants were a vital workforce involved in the Eastern trauma. Eastern was unique in its employee involvement and ownership. The flight attendants, along with other employees of Eastern, by foregoing wage increases and other benefits, had been given the opportunity to share in whatever profits the airline might generate. They had all become part owners of the company through an employee stock ownership plan. This had a dramatic impact within the company, though greatly improved morale of the employees and greater productivity. The employees of Eastern took the ball into their own court. More productive personnel contracts with flight and ground crews improved communications with all personnel by establishing clear-cut objectives. Productivity goals were established, as well as service quality standards, and a spirit of working together as a company. At the same time, innovative marketing moves were made. A new Eastern hub at Kansas City was established. Another moneymaker for Eastern proved to be the Moonlight Specials. Flights with very low fares were freight contracts paid for the cost of flying the trip. This operation was the brainchild of Russell Gray, Jr., Senior Vice President of Marketing eastern was awarded a new international route from its miami hub to london the service inaugurated on july 15 1985. as miami was a major hub this new service gave uk passengers access to most u.s markets and connections on the easterns of the caribbean islands as well as to central and south america first-class passengers to london were introduced to Golden Wing Service, a seven-course dinner consisting of caviar and lobster served with champagne, a Caesar salad, and standing rib roasts with vegetables. Fruit and cheese were served, followed by dessert or English trifle and international coffees. Excellence in dining was keynoted in all cabins. Executive Service offered dinner and breakfast served on China and with linen. Economy-class passengers received hot towels and a choice of dinner entrees, as well as a continental breakfast. For a while, Eastern rose out of the ashes of near disaster to spread its wings. Profitability, however, was short-lived because of a highly competitive operating environment and the continuing high cost of Eastern's labor force. Wage concessions gained from employees were only temporary. With no long-term wage concessions from employees, the airline found that in February 1986 It was able to meet, and service its debt, and remain a viable company. Eastern's management and the board of directors were forced to sell the company to Texas Air. The rest is history. A 60-year-old airline ceased to exist with the demise of Eastern Airlines on January 18, 1991. But the wings of man still exist in its many former employees' hearts. This is from a 1991 interview with Major General B.W. McLaughlin, former Eastern Airlines Vice President of Marketing and Sales, New York. Republished from Footsteps in the Sky by Helen McLaughlin with the author's permission.
0: L.S.B. Easters, Radio Air Check and Classic TV Channel. Feel the seconds, feel each minute. As the day goes by, feel yourself in it. It's a good day to often fly away, it's so easy. some good news from Eastern Airlines. Now you can fly to Miami and Fort Lauderdale at super saver prices. Just $119 for round-trip night coach, $144 for round-trip day coach, and you get all the frills. Just plan to stay at least seven days, but not more than 30 days, and reserve and purchase your ticket a week in advance. For reservations, call your travel agent for Eastern Airlines. Eastern Airlines. <laughs>
2: This next story comes to us from the uh, uh, REPA magazine, as told by Captain Martin F. Marty Winter. I think all of us have probably heard that old saw about airline flying as hours and hours of boredom, interjected by moments of stark terror. Well, this is Captain Winter's uh, remembrance of some of those moments of stark terror. The uh, title of the, uh, of the uh, article is called Coal Altitude. Recalling an experience of two or two from my 23 years of flying with Eastern Airlines, what follows stands out in my memory more vividly the most. On the morning of January 9, 1974, I was the second officer on Eastern Flight 673, a Boeing 727, departing Syracuse, New York at 1133 local, nonstop to Miami. Czech Captain Bill Weber was in the left seat with 1st Officer Dan Whitman flying co-pilot. Within less than 45 minutes, we had reached our cruising altitude of FL-350 and were well above a Cirrus deck in clear air at .84 Mach. At approximately 12.30 Eastern Standard Time over Front Royal, Virginia, all three crew members were astounded to see a DC-10 pass right over us at less than 100 feet it was without a doubt the largest DC-10 we had ever seen. Since the United Airlines DC-10, Flight 99, en route from JFK to LAX, approached from our 7 to 8 o'clock position, we never saw the airplane until it just cleared us from left to right and above. Both flights were under the control of the Washington Air Route Traffic Control Center in Leesburg, Virginia. United 99 called the center first and requested our assigned flight level. The center center replied, FL350. Captain Weber, in return, requested United's assigned flight level. After the center's response of, also FL350, sir, Captain Weber advised the center that we just had an extremely close near miss. The center replied, that was a gross controller error, sir. Is it your intention to file a report? Captain Weber's answer was something to the effect of, you can bet on it. After composing ourselves, I asked the boss, is this what they meant by airline flying as hours and hours of boredom interjected by moments of stark terror? Within 30 minutes after the near miss, the flight attendant brought me the following eyewitness account from one of our passengers, handwritten on a legal pad, and I quote, Witness of a near miss between a United DC-10 and Eastern Airlines Flight 673. Location seat 10A EAL 673. I first sighted the DC-10 at a range of several miles, apparently co-altitude or slightly low in our nine o'clock position. As our flight paths appeared convergent, I began tracking the DC-10 relative to a spot on the cabin window. There was no apparent motion indicating a collision course in azimuth. As the two aircraft closed within one mile of each other, I became very concerned that we were co-altitude. Just as I felt the collision was imminent, the DC-10 executed a sharp pull-up and appeared to pass directly overhead. The apparent missed distance was close enough so that I expected to feel an impact on our tailplane. As we passed the contrail of the DC-10 simultaneous with when I expected the impact, I noticed that it appeared co-altitude up until the point of pull-up where a relatively sharp bend occurred. I feel that I am a highly qualified observer of aircraft proximity and closure, having recently completed four years of service as a USAF interceptor pilot. During these years of service, I experienced numerous near-misses that occurred as part of military training intercepts. I can confidently state that no time during that service did I have a greater sense of impending collision than I did today. Only in close formation have I flown nearer another aircraft. Any further assistance I might render, I would be glad to provide. God was with us. Michael S. Hall, Captain, New York Air National Guard, 138th TFS Flying Safety Officer, Hancock Field, New York. Captain Hall's sentiment, God was with us, was seconded by all in the cockpit. I don't believe our approximate 150 passengers, other than Captain Hall, ever realized what had happened. I'm sure that United 99's close to 300 people did after the 2.5G pull-up to clear us. We heard later that United landed in Detroit to assist some injured passengers and flight attendants. After all these years, goosebumps are still there whenever I recall the incident. That's as close as I ever want to come in almost 30 years and 15,000 hours of flying between the USAF and Eastern. Hey, funny face. Hi. Guess what, I'm going out of town tomorrow to the sales conference.
0: Out of town?
1: can't they send somebody else?
2: No, honey, it's my big idea about the conveyor.
1: Well, can't you send them a letter? uh uh-uh. a phone call? Smoke signals?
0: No, honey. It's my idea about the conveyor and I've got to be there to present it in person. It's a big opportunity.
1: I know. I'm very happy. Got your tickets?
0: Eastern Airlines.
1: When will you be back?
2: Same day, tomorrow night.
1: Oh, you mean you'll be home tomorrow. Yeah,
2: Eastern has a
0: schedule where you go in the morning, come back in the evening. Oh, honey, they're just gonna love your idea about the conveyor. I love you. <laughs> Eastern Airlines has same day return schedules to many cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. Eastern will fly you to your business meeting in the morning, then bring you home for a goodnight kiss. Wherever you want to go, call Eastern and ask. Getting home is half the fun. Come fly with Eastern.
2: This next article we have is from the book, The Wings of Man. It's the first article in the book. It was written by Mr. George Hamilton. George was not an Eastern employee, but he had over 40 years of uh, career in the aviation industry. This is his just uh, uh, personal observations. The article is Falcons, Hockey Sticks, and Whisper Jets by George Hamlin, Eastern Airlines, A Personal Viewpoint. I never managed to experience the full horror that Eastern purportedly became during the period of decline that led ultimately to its failure. Tales of dismal service and up operations, lost baggage, etc., abounded. But during my numerous trips over the years on EAL, I never witnessed what apparently was obvious to numerous pundits, as well as much of the general public, if popular accounts of those times are to be believed. So, at the outset, let's be clear: this narrative is intended to celebrate the life of Eastern, not to heap dirt on the coffin. Much ink has already been applied to the printed page that falls into the latter category. Suffice to say that the carrier's demise resulted from interminal, internecine warfare, coupled with a change in regulatory philosophy that replaced what was known as the failing business doctrine, uh, which was used a number of times during regulation to justify merging a weak airline with a stronger one, with the prospect that an airline really could fail. During 1991, it would be illustrated three times as, in addition to Eastern, both Pan Am and post deregulation entrant Midway would also cease flying. Throughout Eastern's long history, there were many things meriting praise. Take for example image. Although the latter-day carrier of the bland two-tone hockey stick livery, both the earlier white crown and the later even less colorful bare metal version, Was hardly anything to write home about, Eastern in the 1950s and 60s was an entirely different category. During an era when a paint salesman might have found it difficult to support a family had American Airlines been his account, and when many other airlines settled for variations on the patriotic red, white, and blue theme, Eastern didn't stint when it came to decorating the fleet. The liveries displayed then belied the conservatism of the airline's management. Huge red-orange falcons perched on the tails of many aircraft. Others of their species rode in a circular emblem near the nose. And what about the original paint scheme featured on the Lockheed 188 Electra? Vibrantly colorful, complete with the admonition to, of course, fly Eastern's prop jet Electra. Or the gorgeous schemes, accented in gold, featured on the DC-8 at its inception. Although Eastern was often viewed as a rather bland, colorless carrier in many ways, a look at the fleet during this period should have convinced any reasonable observer otherwise. Eastern was also an innovator. You probably thought that the Airbus was a European aircraft first used in the U.S. by the subject of our discussion. No, as stated here, referring to a program to provide discounted air service from the Midwest to Florida using piston-engine aircraft made surplus following the introduction of jets. Eastern would continue to be in the forefront in terms of developing and promoting leisure travel for many years, particularly with its latter-day home state of Florida was involved, a good example being its selection as the official carrier of Disney World. Finding another use for otherwise redundant prop aircraft resulted in what was the crowning success for the airline, the Air Shuttle. Never glamorous, it nonetheless became an institution and in all likelihood one of the carrier's more profitable operations. Over the years, this unlikely combination of an underloved airline and its semi-cost cast-off equipment, the Electras that replaced the Constellations persisted on shuttle routes until 1977, simply forged ahead methodically until even the mighty American Airlines conceded the LaGuardia, Boston, Washington national markets in their entirety. During the 1960s, Eastern had not forgotten the fundamentals of aircraft promotion. The 727 was certainly one of the more significant U.S. advances of the early turbojet era when it entered service in 1964, particularly as it enabled jet service to expand in short-haul markets. You probably don't have any memory of what American, TWA, or United did to hike the Trijet, jet but if you have any seniority in the airline watching field, I'll bet that you haven't forgotten the term whisper jet. In today's terms, the juxtaposition of whisper and the 727 might strike you as odd, because the aircraft, particularly in an unmodified state, is long gone from the airways. Actually, when you, the advertising appellation was meant to emphasize the lack of noise within the cabin rather than what was heard outside, although the 727 was a distinct improvement over the 707 and DC-8 in the latter category as well. Applying the whisper terminology to even quieter wide-body aircraft was a natural of course, although here the specific term applied by the company was not as memorable as the more irreverent name common in the ent- enthusiast community. Yes, Eastern intended for its least 747s and later its own l 11s to be whisper liners, but you knew when you saw the former, say from one of the two observation techs at JFK, that they were in fact whisper whales. On the subject of in-flight service, the jet age Eastern seemed to get few notices unless they were bad. Personal experience did not always bear the South. In fact, there were occasions where the features provided by EAL, modestly without fanfare, were superior to those highly touted by the competition. In a market such as JFK to Houston Intercontinental, for example, Eastern offered a choice of three entrees in both cabins. A competitor's trademark, in-flight service, which implied that it was suitable for royalty, while nice enough, assumed that the steak would suffice. Advanced seat selection? I'm sure that you can guess which airline had it well in advance of the other. Eastern, as indicated by its association with the shuttle, was more comfortable than most in the role of providing air transportation in a basic sense, presaging trends in an industry subsequent to its demise. Two other instances serve to illustrate this. At the end of a Christmas-New Year holiday period early in the 1970s, I can recall Eastern's radio advertisements in Miami indicated that on the peak travel day, anyone wanting to go to New York simply should show up, and the airline would accommodate them. Similarly, at LaGuardia late that Friday night of the President's Day weekend in 1972, the crowd actually cheered the announcement that an Electra was going to be brought over from the shuttle pool the scheduled capacity having been oversubscribed, and that all present would be in Miami that night, albeit a little later than planned. As the 1980s progressed into the 1990s, Eastern began to fade, although innovation didn't cease entirely. Struggling to compete with newer carriers having lower-cost structures, seating on DC-930s was reduced to 99 total in order to keep the cabin attendant complement at 2 rather than 3. This can't have been easy for the cabin crews, but they gamely persisted. Following the demise of Braniff, the original version, Eastern became a significant international force by taking over Braniff's Latin American route structure. Service to London from Miami followed. During the troubled experience late in the 1980s, Eastern did decline, even in a visible sense, however. Viewing the fleet showed evidence of less than the previous level of appearance care certainly some of the many stories about passenger service debacles had some truth in them. The strike and its aftermath compounded this by splitting the employees into warring factions and made compromise, particularly with respect to management, impossible. As a result, when viewed from the comfortable position of hindsight, Eastern's fate was sealed, particularly when political and economic events unfolded as they did in 1990. Indicative of this process was the sale of the once-proud air shuttle to Donald Trump, who vowed that he would run it as a diamond, most certainly as it had been the jewel in Eastern's crown. Late in this period, I had the occasion to travel on Eastern following the implementation of the first class for Coach fares promotion, designed to attract business travelers who had strayed from the customer base. The trip was pleasant in a standard short-medium-haul airline context, F for a Y fare, And this environment was good value, indeed, but it did not stave off the inevitable. Probably the summation of Eastern Airlines, when it was alive and reasonable well, was contained in its long-running billing as the wings of man. This was based on its ranking as the largest carrier of passengers in the free world, itself a revealing indication of the relatively short-haul nature between major metropolitan conurbations of much of Eastern's traffic. Good, basic, dependable transportation from the shuttle on up, provided by people who, by and large, deserved a better reputation and ultimately, fate than they received.
0: year in a row, more passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day.
1: For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline, stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet, About 15 minutes after broadcast, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's Episode 1. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is e holland at yahoo.com. That's e n e a l holland H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We'll record it and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.